Good morning. It's good to be together this morning. Glad that each of you are here, especially if you're visiting with us. As was said, we're glad to have you and invite you back anytime you can worship with us. And I thank Danny for the prayer on my behalf as well. We certainly solicit those prayers and uh, want to do a good job and edify the congregation. And I hope that you're built up in the faith this morning as we study. If You, you might recall last time I spoke, or for some of you that um, weren't here for that, if I can figure this out. It's not, I have a map here that is not showing now, so, and that is important, so let me see if I can get that running before we get going here. All right. Last time I spoke, we studied, we were studying the book of Acts in December, um, all the different conversion examples that you found there and what those mean, and I talked about Acts chapter 17, where you find Paul on his second missionary journey. You might recall he was in Troas when he received the vision of the man in Macedonia, asking for help, what we call the Macedonian call. And so he went across the sea to Philippi where he, the uh, conversion examples of Lydia and the Philippian jailer happened. And after he leaves Philippi, he continues on and he comes to a city called Thessalonica. Now Thessalonica was a fairly substantial and significant city at that time. This is modern day Greece, by the way, if you're looking at a, a modern map. But Thessalonica uh, set on an important trade route that they called the Ignatian Highway, and it was, a, it was an important trade highway that ran east and west across that region at that time. And so it was fairly significant in terms of modern culture, um, the diversity of people that lived there, who all was present there. And so it was an important stop. And we talked about real-world evangelism last time and how Paul interacted with these folks that he met in these various places. And what it meant to take you know, a more academic version of evangelism and look at how he actually applied it in his daily life. The people that he interacted with, how did he do that? Was he uh, indirect in his approach? You know, and the passion that he had for the people that he was talking to and how he actually cared about the mission and what all that real-world evangelism stuff might mean. And so he stopped in Thessalonica, and there he established a church that we read about in Acts chapter 17. It says, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So as he landed here in Thessalonica, it said he spent three Sabbath days there. So he was there three or four weeks. He spent a month essentially with these folks when he established his church. And he convinced some of the Jews there about Christianity, and he convinced a lot of the Gentiles there about Christianity, and for whatever reason it calls out some of the leading women as a separate group. But it's a very diverse congregation that gets established in Thessalonica here. And again, this, this important area of Macedonia, it's a very uh, trade-intensive area, so it's, it's something that was an important sort of geographical piece in this missionary journey, uh, Paul's second missionary journey. Most of the scholars talk about Thessalonica having anywhere from 150 to 200,000 people, so that's something that we can relate with about the size of Amarillo, and so... Um, as we read about this congregation here in Thessalonica, I think it's very um, obviously important in terms of the message that's taught to us, but it also kind of 
has a feel that we can identify with. It's not something in a New York City or somewhere with millions and millions of people, but it's somewhere that has enough people to make a difference. You know, we've got an important east-west highway running through our town, and so there's a lot of similarities there that made me think of, the, of Amarillo as we think about this. And so um, as he spent these three or four weeks in this town, you know, he would, you remember we talked about last time how these Jews caused such an uproar that ultimately he's run out of town, but it made such an impact on him that he ended up writing letters to those. And, that, and that's how we had the, the book of First and Second Thessalonians. And that's what I want to start a series of studies on, the book of First Thessalonians, in what I'm calling Real World Faith in Part 1. You know, we spent a lot of time last uh, year and last fall talking about the book of James and what faith looks like throughout the book of James. And in James chapter 2, specifically, when he talks about the link between faith and works and how those two should be indistinguishable, that people say, I have faith without works, I'm going to show you my faith by my works. And so, much as we talked about last time with evangelism, how there's sort of an academic view. You've got to learn the principles and understand the principles of what it means to evangelize. And then in this Acts 17 study we did, that's kind of the real-world version of that. What does it look like taking those principles and putting them into action? And that's what I want to do today as we think about the church in Thessalonica. We talked about all of these principles in the book of James and what the, the real-world faith is and what all that kind of stuff means. And then we're going to look at the church here to see that played out in everyday lives of real men and women in the church. And I hope you're benefited by this study. It's probably one of Paul's first letters that he wrote. Uh, I don't want to do a lot of history on this, but I think it's important to have the context of it being an early letter because then when we read all these other books and studies, you can see how he interacted with the churches, maybe changed his approach somewhat, certainly changed his approach depending on the audience and what he was dealing with in that area. Um, but probably one of his first letters, some people think Galatians was written before this, but it would have been written somewhere around AD 50. So a little bit of debate about where he wrote it from. Some people think he wrote it after he got all the way to Corinth. Some people think he wrote it in Athens. I lean toward Athens because of how we re read about in Acts 17. When he got to Athens, he was, had a little bit of time to kill there. And so you remember he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on him. Um, so I tend to think that this letter was written in Athens there while this was on his mind and on his heart. But either, in either case, it was written from a fairly close locale and also in a, from a fairly recent uh, events standpoint. He hadn't been gone from Thessalonica very long when this letter was written. And so it, those folks were on his heart and on his mind when he wrote this letter. Um, and I think it shows in his writing to them. He starts off the chapter by saying, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. You know, I, I was thinking about, um, and I don't, I don't have any desire to just read word for word every single chapter, but I was thinking about these introductions, you know, and I've always, I think, looked at these introductions very casually. And, you know, I think about when I sit down in, of a morning or an afternoon and write an email, I'll usually say, you know, good morning, uh, you know, some sort of casual greeting to whoever I'm sending that email to, and then you kind of get into the meat of what you have to say or ask, right? And I think that's the way I've always used these letters. And after studying Acts chapter 17 and the events that happened there, I have a little different perspective on this. And so I think, let's don't gloss over these, right? He's saying something to these people with this. And when he says grace to you and peace, there's a meaning behind that. In Acts chapter 17, 
After he had reasoned with these Jews and converted some of them, it says the Jews were jealous. And taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There's this other king, Jesus. So when he writes a letter to the Thessalonians and he says, Grace to you and peace, he means it. These people were being persecuted from day one. They were being dragged out of their houses. They were persecuted from the get-go. So when he writes a letter to them saying, Grace to you and peace, he's hoping they're okay. He left them in a situation where he probably didn't want to leave yet. He wasn't ready to go. And he knew that they were dealing with things that were going to be difficult. And it's an important piece of context, contextual information as we read and study about this book. And, I, and I, again, the point there being, let's don't gloss over this. Everything's there for a reason, and we skim these greetings and things. And if we'll read the whole text and read the whole chapter and think about the events that have happened there, it has some meaning behind it. He, he genuinely was hoping that they were okay there. The ironic part, I think, of these accusations, and we talked a little bit about this last time, but... You know, this guy, obviously, we, you don't like how it goes down, right? He's dragging them out of their homes. They're, you know, they're out for blood is what they're out for. But what he accuses them, you're kind of like, okay, that's pretty much true. They, have they turned the world upside down? Certainly have turned the world upside down. It's a message that was designed to do that, and it was working. Did they say Jesus was king? Yeah, they said it was king. Now, did they misunderstood what they meant by Jesus being king? They misunderstood that. They were thinking all materialistic. But it's ironic to me that, you know, what they were being accused of was pretty much true on most fronts, that they were certainly turning the world upside down. And I think I like that language, how it describes it that way there, right? That they're turning it upside down, because that's exactly what Paul was doing as he was traveling across this region and preaching and setting up these churches. He was turning the world upside down. And what he did here in Thessalonica certainly did that as well. And I think it leads to the first important lesson that we have from the church here, and that is, what does a congregation's behavior look like in the face of persecution? This church felt it from day one, you know, and not only is it remarkable that this church got founded in the face of persecution, this kind of persecution, there was individual persecution that, you know, individuals had to deal with, the church was founded in it, it's amazing that that many people obey the gospel in the face of that kind of persecution. He says, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before, God and before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think we can learn from these folks about what it looks like as a congregation in the face of persecution. You know, we talk about persecution a lot and the fact that we don't experience that in this nation like uh, certainly like these men and women did at this point like other brothers and sisters throughout the world in our time experience persecution and when we talk about persecution we often think about that from an individual perspective what would I do if I faced that persecution how would I act or react if that kind of persecution was presented in this modern day and time what would I do and I think there's a lesson here on what would we do as a congregation. Denny prayed about unity this morning, and we know unity is a critical part of an effective congregation. 
What would we do in the face of persecution? I, the closest thing I've seen to that in my lifetime, I suppose, as a congregation, is COVID. I don't remember seeing anything that was as frustrating. You know, we're trying to decide, do we meet? We're trying to decide when we come back to meeting. We're trying to decide what all do we do rules-wise with that. Half the people aren't going to like it if you wear a mask. Half the people aren't going to like it if you do wear a mask. Really difficult and challenging times. And it challenged, I believe, what it meant to be unified as a congregation. These people had it from the start, and it's a really good lesson from us that we need, to, we need to understand and recognize the importance of that unity in the face of persecution and how we behave based on that. Paul calls out their work of faith here. Remember James chapter 2? He didn't just call out the faith. He called out the work of faith. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And this was a congregation that established that early on. And you might say that the Thessalonians were somewhat of a model congregation, and I want to be careful um, trying to build them up. In, I, I'm not trying to build them up in that, but we were given these letters for a reason, right? Some of the congregations had some issues that we need to learn from. Some of them were doing things pretty good that we need to learn from, and they were somewhat of a model congregation. There's not a lot said to them super critical. Now, they're also a month old, so, and they're human, so I'm sure given time, they did what all of us do and showed our humanness in that. But as we read about them, they're a fairly model congregation, and so we should learn these lessons from them and behave that way as a congregation. So he goes on to say, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. What does it mean to be chosen by God? I think that's a somewhat leads to a discussion on predestination. And this, uh, this lesson is not designed to, to attack the idea of predestination in general. There's that, that probably would be a study or a series of studies all in its own. But I think a lot of the times when you read these, these passages that use that kind of language, that it leads to those kinds of discussions, you know, that it's predestination, that you have no choice in it, you were either one of the chosen or you weren't one of the chosen. And, and that's applied individually. So either my name was chosen, predestined, that I was going to be chosen by God or it wasn't. Now, you can study the Scriptures relatively quickly, find that that's not a, 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 a subject that's approved in the Scriptures. That's not, a, that's not how it's described in the Scriptures. What was predestined was the idea that man would need a Savior, that there was a plan to save mankind, and that that plan was predestined before the foundation of the world. And God laid that out, and that plan was Jesus. And so when he talks about being chosen here, he tells them how they were chosen. They were chosen because they came, the gospel came to them in word, and it came to them in power. Remember, Jason talked about that Wednesday night. It was a perfect discussion, as it is here. What does that mean, it came to them in power? Well, it's God's grace, as he described it, God's grace manifested in Jesus. He taught them Jesus, and that came to them, and he taught them the gospel. And the important part of that is not that it just came to them, but they had full conviction in it. It came to them in power. He brought the message to them, but it just didn't leave it that. He didn't say, you're chosen, you're chosen, you're chosen, you're not, you're not, you're not. Okay, there's the congregation. Remember what it said early on, that many of, some of the Jews believe, many of the Greeks believe? 
Those that were convinced of his message and obeyed the gospel. That's the chosen. That's who was chosen. Listen how he talks about it in 1 Peter. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I think the Thessalonians believed this. I think they knew they were chosen. I think they knew what they had been given, and they acted on that. They acted on that faith, and they proclaimed it as we read about. And isn't it great to know you can be one of the chosen? It's not a guessing game. How else would we know? How silly does that sound? How do I ever find out if it's a total predestination with my name is either on the list or not? How do I find that out? We have no way to know. So do you live as, you know, maybe you try to live as a Christian your whole life and then just hope you were on the list at the end of it? It doesn't even make sense in common sense terms. It comes through the power of the gospel. It comes through his grace and the message of Jesus. And it comes through our response to that. Is that response full conviction? Do we believe it? Are we willing to obey it? Are we willing to do the things God asks us to do after that? Are we willing to have a real-world faith that acts on the things that we believe? That's how we know if we're chosen of God. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I got to thinking about this idea of imitation. You know, somewhere along the way, we got to the point where imitation is a bad thing. Not evil or anything like that, but it's just we look at imitate, we think of imitation in a negative connotation. You know, well, I bought this pair of shoes and now so and so's wearing a pair of shoes just like it. They just, they're trying to be just like me or they're trying to be like him or whatever, right? Or we got, you know, we got a luncheon coming up. Are those real mashed potatoes? No, they're instant mashed potatoes, right? And so we have this negative association with the idea of imitation. And I don't know how we got there, even in something as silly as imitation mashed potatoes. What are, you, what are they trying to do with that? Well, there's this real thing, right? And for whatever reason, we can't make the real thing. Maybe we don't like some part of its makeup. You know, maybe we're trying to reduce carbs. I don't know the reason behind imitation mashed potatoes. But whatever the reason, we're trying to make this thing be as much like the real thing as we can. And... That's not a bad thing. And let's be honest, if we talk about imitation in general, very few of us actually pioneer anything in our lives. I'm not the first ever person to wear this kind of shoes. I probably saw them on somebody else or saw them on a website or Facebook knows, somehow knows the things that I like now and sticks the right kind of ad in front of me. But we don't ever pioneer anything. We go to school to learn. What does that mean? Well, somebody else figured something out along the way, and now they're teaching it to you. And then you get out, and you get a job, and you don't show up to work, and you know everything about your job day one. They sit you down with a set of rules or policies or procedures or a mentor, and they say, you're going to report to this team, and this person's going to be your supervisor, and they're going to mentor you, and they're going to teach you the way to do it. And that's what imitation is. And he told these people you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. You learned how to imitate what we were doing. Making our mark on the church isn't something that we should strive for. There shouldn't be a desire to make my mark on the church. You hear people say that, right? I want to make my mark on history. 
and people that have these huge egos and they think, look, I'm gonna live this life and you know, sure, I want lots of money and I want lots of power and all this, but at the end of the day, I'm gonna be dead and people are gonna forget about me. But if I can make my mark on history, then they're gonna put my name in a book, a history book, and then it, nobody's ever gonna forget me. We, don't, we shouldn't be desiring to make our mark on the church. That's not the goal here. Trying to do something so individualistic that nobody's done it before or be revolutionary in our ideas, that's not the desire here. He said, you imitate me as I imitated Christ. Imitating others in the faith is not a bad thing, and it's actually something that we should strive to do. And if you look at a lot of Paul's writings to the other churches, he uses that same language in a lot of places. This is a little bit small, but I didn't want to spend too much time in this area. But he wrote to the church at Corinth, though you have countless gods in Christ, you do not have many fathers. So let's be clear who's the head here. Even though you might look to other people for guides, examples in the faith, God's at the top of this, right? For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent Timothy to you, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. So not only did I show you when I was with you, I even sent Timothy back to remind you of what we were trying to tell you. I want you to imitate that. If you imitate that, it's going to ground you the way you should be. He goes on to say later in 1 Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so it wasn't an arrogance thing or something that Paul wanted to be put up on a pedestal. He said, only imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's the way we should be teaching. That's the way we should be teaching our congregations. It's the way we should be teaching our children. You look to me only as far as I'm imitating Christ, where I'm imitating the church at Thessalonica and I'm doing what they did, then you do that too. And they did that because that's what they saw Paul and the others do. And Paul and the others did that because that's what they saw Christ do and how they saw him behave and what he wanted. Imitation is not a bad thing. The church at Philippi, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Wrote to Timothy, instructing him in his evangelism. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Timothy was embedded with him. And learned how to do everything just like Paul learned how to do it. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set an example. Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in purity. What should we imitate? Everything. Set the example so that it should be imitated the way Christ would do it. In every area of life. It's not just evangelism. It's not just preaching or singing or teaching. It's your conduct, how you act and behave on a daily basis. It's how you love other people, what kind of love you show to others and how they see that in your life. It's your faith. How do they imitate your faith? How do they imitate belief? Because they see it working. They see a real-world faith that's a working faith, and then they can act on that, and they can say, hey, if I go do the things that this person does, I know I'm doing what God wants me to do because that's a working faith. Imitation's a good thing, and I think we learn that lesson loud and clear here. And because of that imitation, he says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. It's really quite amazing how such a newly formed congregation gets this kind of praise. And because of this imitation in the faith, he said, you became an example. Now, if you remember, Macedonia is this whole area. It's Greece, really. And Achaia is that bottom part, I think still modern-day Greece, when it drops down there like Corinth in that area. It's a pretty good size area, geographically speaking, especially at those times with, with the uh, current day transportation and everything. 
pretty good example. And he said, you became an example to all, this whole area. I don't know what that's equivalent to. Is that the Texas Panhandle equivalent, maybe? Wouldn't it be pretty good if we were an example as a congregation to everybody in the Panhandle and people could look to us and say, this congregation's doing something right? Well, how do we know they're doing something right? Well, look what the Thessalonians did and what they were praised for. And that congregation's doing all that same stuff. Shouldn't that be something that we strive for and want to do as a congregation? Be an example to all the believers. And again, we often talk about setting example, personal examples, right? And we should all certainly strive to do that. We should strive to be good individual examples of our life and our character, how we behave and how we interact. But we should also think about that a little more globally as a congregation, And we should understand that those individual examples that we set can help move the cause forward or could hurt it. And probably, arguably, you could hurt it a lot quicker individually than you could help it individually. A couple bad decisions, you know, poor decisions, bad choices in life, and you put a stain on the congregation. Let's set an example as a congregation. So that leads to the question of how. How did they set the example? For not only has the word of, word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul's like, I don't even need to build you up. I don't need to go to these other places and say anything about you because what you're doing is speaking for itself. You know, and not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but it's going out all over the place. So apparently, whatever actions that the church in Thessalonica took were making a real impact in that society in that whole area. And he didn't even have to speak on it on his own. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You remember how, as he's moving through this region in Acts chapter 17, he left Thessalonica, was run out of town, ended up in Berea. Remember there, the, church, the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word better. And then he left Berea and went down to Athens where he came across the, all of the idol worship. Apparently, it was prevalent here too, right? It wasn't just Athens. It was this whole area was idolatry. He said, you left the idols. Remember, remember in Athens, he came across the, the inscription to the unknown God, and so he preached a sermon there about their idols and stuff. He said, you left the idols. You repented. You guys left it. So the lesson is a congregation is going to be known by the actions that it takes and what they do. And that's how they, that's how they imitated. That's how they set the example. It was a real-world faith. And remember, our study in James and just the un, unbroken link between faith and works, they can't stand alone, faith and works. They've got to go together. And these people demonstrated it daily in their lives. Let's strive to have a faith that produces this kind of action in us. And I think maybe the most important lesson we can learn from them here, that same set of scriptures, verse number eight, he says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. What were the actions that he was referring to that, that, he saw, that people saw them here? What were the actions? Well, he says two things. You repented from your idol worship. You changed your ways. You turned from these idols to serve God. 
as he asked you to, and then you sounded forth the word. And that sounds an awful lot like, to me, like the church in Thessalonica believed the Great Commission and believed that they had a mission to do. And they believed that that was accomplished through the example that they set, imitating Paul and Jesus, where their lives looked like that. And they they believed that that was accomplished by going to all the world and teaching the gospel to every creature. He said, your mission, your stuff is seen. It's not just Macedonia and Kenya, but it's seen everywhere. What was seen everywhere? They sounded forth the word. We have a duty to set a good example and sound forth the word. It means they got their lives right, and then they did what God asked them to do. It means that their works were linked to their faith, that the two were inseparable, that they did the things that they believed and the things that they said they believed, that you saw them do those things in their life. So he finishes chapter 1 there with the kind of a, a what's it all about statement, right? You turn from idols to serve God, so now what? He said, now you wait for his son. That's the promise now. The promise is that he's coming back. And he spends some time in this chapter, and we're going to get into it in the coming studies, talking about the second coming of Christ. What does that look like and what does it mean? And we'll talk about and try to get into why those questions were raised here with the Thessalonians and why he talked about it. But it may be, maybe the single kind of most comprehensive place he talks about the second coming in the Scriptures is here in Thessalonians. And so I'm looking forward to doing those studies as well and know that there will be a lot of benefit in that as well. Really interesting book. Uh, excited to do these studies want us to be more like the church in Thessalonica, and I don't think it's bad to say that. Let's strive to be a better example as a congregation. Let's be a congregation that imitates the church here, that imitates Paul, that imitates Christ, that sets the right kind of example to where the word goes out, that people hear about that example and sets an example they can imitate. There's nothing wrong with being an example that others imitate as long as we're doing what we should be doing. If we become an example for others, not to imitate, that's a problem. Let's strive to be more like that. And let's show our faith in a way and conduct ourselves in a way that sound, and sound forth the word like we should be doing so that we are that example. If you're here today and you're lost in life, this is a pattern for how to get your life on track. It's pretty simple. Turn from the idols like they did here imitate, find somebody in the faith you can imitate, receive the gospel, the power of the gospel, the message of Jesus, receive that. Not not only receive it and hear about it, but be convicted about it. If you're fully convicted about that, be willing to obey it. Be willing to obey the gospel and then go sound forth the word like he's asked us to. And that's what we should be doing as a congregation. It's a really simple formula that we see here in the church in Thessalonica. And I hope that you enjoy these studies and are benefited by them and been really interesting to me to tie this all together with some of those events you read in Acts. And when you start reading all these other letters in context of, the, of some of the events that you get, the other parts of the history that you get in the other books and time together and not just picking and choosing verses and passages out of them, it's really helpful to understand the message that's being taught there. If you're here today and you have any need that the church can help you with, all of these things that we're talking about, these are first principle conversations the power of the gospel and what it can do in your life and the change that that produces and the change that it should produce in you. 
And if you have a need this morning to obey the gospel, we're going to offer an invitation song, and we invite you to do that this morning. Or if you have any other need that the church can help you with, we invite you to come as well as we stand and sing this song.